Tell us the news from the hill. Ah, well, the news. Why, for instance, is this thus? And what is the reason for this thusness? Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-founder of the Tulane Center for Sport. This is another very special episode of the podcast, part two of Why Is This Thus? We're going to dig back into the legal issues underlying much of the craziness in college sports to help you understand what is going on and where college sports may be headed. On the episode, we'll cover the fight for college athlete rights, name, image, and likeness issues, and the potential return of the NCAA video games, Congress's interest in the NCAA, the potential battle over the collegiate model in the Supreme Court, the chances of NFL football on Saturdays, and much, much more with my special co-host, lawyer, dean of students at Tulane Law School, and my wife, Abby, all the same person. It is time to find out why is this thus? Here we go. Hi, Abby. Hi, Gabe. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. Do you remember, I was actually thinking, as I was setting up the recording, right after we got engaged, so this is about 10 years ago. 11 years ago. 11 years ago. I said about 10 years ago. (laughs) We were having dinner, I think it was at either an Asian fusion place or, or maybe it was Chipotle. And I said to you, that was funny. I said Asian fusion or Chipotle. I know. Oh, <laughs> and I said to you, what do you, what do you want to do professionally? Where do you see yourself? And you gave this great answer. And then you asked me and I said, you know what, what I really want to do is start a sports law podcast. And and you said, oh, what a great idea. It's, it's a good time to start one. I said, no, 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 I want to start one in about 11 years. And then when I start it, I want to have you on as my sixth guest. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. And yeah. Here we I'm, are. I'm glad you waited. And here we are. It's the right time. Some people have asked why I have my wife on to be my co-host today. And I like to remind people that back when we were first dating, that you were very good at pretending to like sports, <laughs> which which impressed me and yeah. has, has stuck with me. And every now and then, it I was think, effective. Oh, it was, was effective. effective. <laughs> and and I, of course, pretended to like Jane Austen. And so here we are. Yep. Both resenting the other one for spending so much time <laughs> doing those things. I think you may spend a little bit more time on sports than I do on Jane Austen. Yeah, but Jane Austen books are so long. They're, they're actually not. Equals... They're actually pretty short. But oh. the the BBC productions that uh, you know of the books are quite long. So back to the question of why you are co-hosting this sports law podcast with me. Why are you hosting this with me? Well. Um, It could be because you've been asking me to do this every day for three weeks or that I'm just supportive of your dreams and, you know, passions. I think it's probably the first one, but I I want everybody to know people have been asking why has there been such a delay in putting the new podcast episode out? And it's because my wife, who is supportive, also was the most difficult guest to book mm-hmm. on this show. Mm-hmm. I'm very busy and important. You know, yeah. what can I say? Well, I think it probably has more to do trying to do this after our children are asleep, which can be challenging. Sure. Blame the children. Oh, it's and all their fault. So what type of vibe do you think we should be going for? 
Well, I think the ultimate vibe for any couple would be Tammy Taylor and Coach Taylor. Ooh, that's good. I yeah. don't think I can pull yeah, off no. Coach Taylor. No, but you know, I can't pull off Tammy Taylor either. Those wrap dresses, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is audio only. <laughs> Another option would be Turk and JD who are pretty much the ideal couple. It's true. It's true. And they do have their own podcast. Yes. 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 I think I've got it. Um, I think we should do cousin Larry and Balky. <laughs> I think your audience might not get that reference. <laughs> I mean, maybe dating ourselves, but yeah, that's pretty perfect. Tell people what you do. Ah, yeah. So I am a lawyer as okay, well. That's enough. So let's, <laughs> uh, so no, go ahead. Okay. Here, let me talk. Go ahead. Okay. So I'm a a lawyer and I uh, clerked for two different judges. And that's what the second clerkship is what brought me to New Orleans. Okay, so back to the regular. I'm going to tell our our, our meet cute because it is sports related that when I moved to New Orleans to clerk for a judge, we met playing touch football in Audubon Park shortly after Hurricane Katrina. And the rest is history, as they say. it wasn't that shortly after. Like it wasn't. No. The next day. But I mean, it was, it was still, and it was yeah. very much. You don't want people to think that we were playing. No, we were not playing touch football in September 2005. Uh, ah, yeah. yeah, no. And then my one year in New Orleans has turned into uh, 15. So I practiced for several years and then have been in higher education administration for eight years. And I've been the dean of students at Tulane Law School for five years, which means that we are colleagues, um, which has been fun. What would you say, from your perspective, is the most important issue facing college sports today? Name, image, and likeness. Did I get it right? (laughs) Not a right or wrong answer. Well, I mean, is that right, though? What do you... Maybe. What do you think? You'll have to listen. What do you think is the next most important issue? Uh, Collective bargaining. Is that a good guess? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. It's a good guess. Or or injury. Concussions. Not COVID? Health and safety. Well, health and safety broadly. So presently COVID. Yeah, but that's that's pretty good, right? I, I do... You know, listen, as you're talking sometimes, <laughs> maybe osmosis. What, what is your favorite sports movie of all time? Uh, well, I mean, number one is Hoosiers for sure. Um, but some other contenders are. I think you're supposed to start with the contenders and then and then number and one. With, okay. Well, but I feel like, okay, also, I maybe build credibility by starting with the lower version. I think you've come with credibility. I don't think you need to build it. I don't need to earn it. Um, So some, uh, I think people might not think of them right away as sports movies. They're definitely sports. Bring It On, excellent movie. For the record, since this is a sports law podcast, keep in mind that competitive cheerleading was held not to be a sport for Title IX purposes. But for Title IX purposes. So it's maybe for movie purposes, most, no. we, can, we can allow it. But You're sounding pretty sexist right now. I know that that's what the court said, but do you agree with that I'm decision? I'm just talking, I'm just reporting it's like the, the highest facts. rate of injuries. Well, all right, let's get to the questions. Okay. So college athletes have been making their voices heard. Um, and there's a lot of talk of athletes trying to form a players union. Is that possible? Now, now, first, I'm going to ask, and I know the answer to this because I'm married to you, but for the listeners, 
Why do they want to form a union? Great question. Thank you. And ask beautifully. Thank you. I think what we're seeing here in part is this perfect storm for college athletes. We have the issues of economic disparity, which have existed for a while with billions of dollars of revenue being generated in big time college football and basketball and college athletes receiving a relatively small share of that that is capped essentially at their educational expenses, plus health and safety issues, obviously with COVID-19 and the push to have a return to college football, and then the existing health and safety issues, concussions, other injuries, medical coverage and insurance, and then the social justice issues and racial inequality. And I think all of that has brought the athletes to a point or some of the athletes to a point where they want to have a vote, not just a voice anymore, because change in the NCAA has been slow and they recognize that it's slow. But not only has it been slow, but it's been done for the most part without the athletes having real input. So the idea is that a union would give the athletes, the college athletes, the right to negotiate, to bargain collectively with whether it's the institutions or the conference or the NCAA. And the NCAA or whoever it would be would have to negotiate in good faith with them over wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment. Every major professional team, sports league in the U.S. has a players union and you might recall for many years, the Major League Baseball Players Association was considered one of the strongest unions in the entire country and helped them get significant increases in benefits and compensation. So I think really what college athletes want is someone representing them and looking after their interests. Not to suggest that universities and athletic directors and coaches aren't concerned about the athletes, but they work for the school. And they're trying to protect themselves and their contracts and raise money and satisfy donors and boosters. But if you have a union, their primary or exclusive concern would be the athletes. And that's not something that exists right now. Okay, so now that we know why they want to form a union, can they form a union? Another really good question. And, you know, I I can't help but be reminded of our good friend Dan W., just the way that these questions <laughs> are being, yeah, are being posed yeah, to me. Yeah, that DNW, yeah. Okay, so here's the answer, and I'm, of course, going to dedicate this answer to Dan W. Under the current law, the answer is no, or at least not yet. And why? Because under federal labor law, only employees have the right to form a union. And the law up until now does not consider college athletes to be employees. And when people hear the college athlete union question, they understandably think of the Northwestern football players. And for those who don't know what I'm talking about, here's a quick summary. Back in 2014, Kane Coulter, who was the quarterback at Northwestern at the time, asked the National Labor Relations Board or the NLRB to recognize the Northwestern football players as employees and to give them the right to form a union and negotiate their terms of employment with Northwestern. And for those of you who don't know, and probably happy you don't, the National Labor Relations Act, or NLRA, authorizes the NLRB to determine whether an employee-employer relationship exists for private employers. And that's important because Northwestern is a private school, 
So the NLRB had the power to hear this case. And at the first stage in the process, what's really the equivalent of the trial court judge for the NLRB, although it's not a judge and it's not actually a trial, concluded that the Northwestern football players are employees because they are on campus first and foremost to play football. And they play and practice 40 to 50 hours per week, and they generate millions of dollars for the school. Northwestern appealed to the full NLRB, which is really the equivalent of the Supreme Court in that world, and the board punted, although punting may be giving them too much credit. They, they chose not to play. And what I mean, and I know this is going to be an unsatisfying answer, but remember, as I just said, so it wouldn't require your full powers of memory, but remember that the NLRB only has power over private employers, not public ones, meaning that the NLRB has no power over public universities. And 108 of the 125 FBS schools are public. So who makes the rules for those public schools and for other employers, public employers in the states? The states do. And several states, particularly in the South and Southeast, don't permit employees at public employers or schools to unionize. So even if the NLRB had determined that college athletes at Northwestern and other private schools were employees, most college athletes at public schools wouldn't have the right to unionize under their state laws. Back to the specific Northwestern example. Northwestern is the only private school in the Big Ten. The other schools are controlled by their state laws. Wisconsin barred public employees, which likely would have included college athletes, from collective bargaining over most issues. Ohio and Michigan tried to explicitly legislate that college athletes can't be employees or unionized after Northwestern tried. If the NLRB were to allow Northwestern football players to form a union and collectively bargain, then the college football players from the other schools in their conference would either be barred from forming a union or would have to take a completely separate path to get there. So the NLRB declined jurisdiction over the Northwestern case because intervening would not serve to promote stability in labor relations, as they put it. In other words, it would create a mess. Okay, so the Northwestern issue was decided in 2015, which makes me feel really old. It probably makes you feel even older since you're older than I am. But has anything... Seems gratuitous. (laughs) Has anything happened since with the NLRB or the courts? Why, yes. There have been a few cases since Northwestern, and they've flown almost entirely under the radar. By the way, you and I have had this conversation many times, Abby, but you know that for a really long time, I thought that a stealth aircraft was actually invisible, like Wonder Woman's plane. You're, You're in stunned silence. In any event, the first case after Northwestern of significance was brought by former track athletes at the University of Pennsylvania, and that was Berger versus NCAA, that was decided in 2017. And the plaintiffs there argued that they were employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, federal law, FLSA. And here's where the law is really something. The FLSA says that every employer must pay their employees a minimum wage. So how does it define employee? Well, it says any individual employed by an employer. So it's 
completely circular. And it doesn't tell us how we can tell if someone is employed by an employer. Instead, it tells us that a person must perform work for an employer. So how does the act define work? Well, of course, it doesn't. Okay, now that we've gotten nowhere with the definitions within the FLSA, where do we go from here? Well, it actually gets better or or worse. To determine whether someone is an employee under the FLSA, the courts have used a seven-factor test, seven factors, without any clear guidance on how much weight each factor should get. But there's more. It's not even an exhaustive list of seven factors. Courts can include other stuff, too. And the goal of the test, here's where there's some clarity, according to the courts, is to determine the economic reality of the working relationship between the person doing the work and the employer. In Berger, the the court, and this was the Seventh Circuit, said that the economic reality is that track athletes at Penn are not employees and they're not doing work. Although they may be working hard and practicing and competing, this is play not work. And the athletes are participating in amateur sports with no expectation of immediate compensation. And that was particularly true in that case because those were non-scholarship athletes in a sport that doesn't make money for the school. One of the judges on the panel said the economic reality might be different. In other words, it might be work for athletes who are participating in revenue-generating sports and receive athletic scholarships like FBS football and Division I men's and women's basketball. There's another case that's even more recent. That's Dawson versus NCAA, and that was decided in August of last year. Similar case, but this time brought by FBS football players claiming that the NCAA and the Pac-12 were their employers. So this wasn't a case against the individual schools. This was against the NCAA and the conference and argued that under the FLSA and California state law that they were employees. The Ninth Circuit rejected that claim. And one other case, it was brought by a Villanova football player making similar claims against the NCAA in 2018 That case was ultimately withdrawn for other reasons, but there has been an even more recent lawsuit filed by a different former Villanova football player in November 2019, again arguing that the NCAA has violated minimum wage laws based on their failure to pay football players. We'll see what happens, if anything, with that lawsuit. But it's has not stopped with Northwestern, but there hasn't been much success since Northwestern. The next question comes from Josh T in North Carolina, and he writes that he's heard that the NCAA has compared college athletes to inmates in state prisons. What? Can I swear? No. Have, no, have they really done that? Well, here's what they've actually done. Okay. The NCAA obviously has a large target on its back, just like other large, powerful organizations do. And some of the attacks, many of the attacks on the NCAA have been justified, and sometimes they're not justified. And part of the issue is that people no longer or maybe never gave the NCAA the benefit of the doubt. 
again, I, I get that. But the problem is sometimes that means that people will very quickly latch on to arguments that are not true or, or not fair. And in this case, somebody reported that the NCAA had argued that the 13th Amendment allows for slavery for prisoners and that college athletes are more like prisoners than they are like free men and women, and therefore that college athletes are not employees, just like prisoners are not employees. Let me break it down and you'll understand why that analogy was made or really wasn't made. And there's a case, it's the, the Van Syke case, where a state prisoner brought a claim that he was being denied minimum wage for his prison employment. And the court in that case was trying to figure out what is the right test to apply to determine if someone, and in this case, a prisoner, should be considered an employee. And they were looking at the multi-factor tests that we've already talked about. And they said in this case, it's not appropriate to apply those multi-factor tests because they don't capture the true nature of the relationship between inmates and state prisons. And they said, because the allegations in that case reveal that he's worked in the prison and for the Department of Corrections pursuant to work assignments from prison, the economic reality is that he was not an employee under the FLSA. The NCAA argued in some of the cases we just talked about previously that the test that should apply is whether the economic reality and whether the true nature of the relationship is such that the college athletes should not be considered employees. Not that they shouldn't be considered employees because they were like prisoners. They weren't analogizing athletes to prisoners. They were trying to establish the appropriate test and the standard to apply. That's why there was discussion of this Van Syke case. That's why there was discussion of state prisons and the 13th Amendment, because those were all factual issues in Van Syke. But the attempt was not to claim that college athletes should be treated like prisoners. Although, again, I understand why some people took it to mean that. Okay, so is the unionization issue dead and decided? I'd say it's mostly dead. Is that... A Francis Fried reference? It is. Oh. <laughs> Inconceivable. <laughs> you so, keep using that word. <laughs> uh, that's good. I, I think it's mostly dead, at least for now. Keep in mind that the Northwestern case was decided by an NLRB under President Obama. If the Obama-era NLRB wouldn't classify college athletes as employees or the Northwestern football players as employees, there's almost no chance of getting a Trump administration board to rule in favor of the athletes. But we'll see what happens if there's a new administration next year. So it's possible in the future. And it's also possible there could be other legal challenges brought in other states under whether it's state law or federal law to try to convince the courts that the economic reality is that college athletes are, in fact, employees. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit, I imagine there are a lot of law students or lawyers who are at the beginning of their careers who are listening to this podcast. What 
wisdom do you want to offer to them? So here's something I want to share with the listeners, because I think it'll be instructive now that we're on episode six of this podcast. And that is my theory of comedy and my theory (laughs) of what makes things funny. Abby, you have been the, the victim of this theory. I wouldn't so say victim. Would you, yeah, would you want to explain accurate. to the listeners what my theory is? It was probably not just my theory. Others have said this, but I've I've certainly practiced it. Yeah. The theory is that repetition is the key to comedy. And so And timing. <laughs> repetition and timing. Um and so you will say something that sometimes it's moderately humorous sometimes it's pretty funny sometimes it's not funny at all and then you'll repeat it and it, it I mean, not, always, immediately. Not, immediately. not immediately not immediately no, not immediately timing. again timing um not immediately but you'll repeat it and then at a later point and then it, it almost always is less funny at that point but you keep on repeating it and then it becomes funny that you're repeating it and it actually becomes really funny again i mean I'll say I'm, a, I'm not I'm not objective. I find you very funny, but for, I'm not alone in that. For those of you who want to see this represented graphically, you can look at the show notes because I'll have a chart <laughs> of the X and Y axis. If uh, there are no show notes, but if anyone wants to do show notes, you can help me with show notes. So, as a perfect ex- example, I think that graph joke is going to be really funny sometime in the future. It's really funny now. It'll be funnier in the future. Okay. But let's get back to sports law. If they can't form a union, what can they do? It depends what the goal is. But the only way that college athletes can get a right to negotiate the terms and conditions of their employment is if they form a union. But there are other ways they can get leverage to get improvements in their conditions. And the most formal alternative would be to form a trade or professional association, which could serve as the unifying voice of the athletes and provide them with a vehicle to negotiate with, or at least to talk to conferences, athletic directors in the NCAA. And it's not a stretch to consider this model. Athletic directors have their own association. It's not a union. It's the National Association of Collegiate Athletic Directors. There's a National Association of Sports Officials and many, 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 many others outside of sports. Even auctioneers have one, the National Auctioneers Association. And you may have seen that men's and women's tennis players and golfers have considered forming unions or players associations that are not unions to try to give them a greater voice in rules. Now, if they do form this type of non-union association, it doesn't mean that they will get to negotiate specific terms, but it could provide them the leverage to try to force or at least spur change. Even if they don't form a 
an actual association, they, they can still affect change, as we've seen with Missouri football, Grambling football, the Mississippi football players. Recently, they have the ability to pressure the NCAA and the schools and the conferences, even without any formal structure. And that could be through a boycott or a threat to boycott or sit out games. And we saw what happened when the Milwaukee Bucks decided to not play a game recently. Now, obviously, the NBA players are represented by a union, but there would be nothing stopping college athletes from doing the same thing, deciding to walk off the court before a game or walk off the field. And that has been discussed many times. The challenge or one of the challenges for college athletes is they have very short and finite careers at the college level. So in some ways, they would be fighting for things that they may not get the benefit of. And that's unlike traditional unions where you generally have long careers. But it's a lot to ask of 18 to 22-year-old-ish college students who've been looking forward and working most of their athletic careers to get to this point to sit out a game and to go against the wishes of their coaches without those athletes having a union behind them or union representing them. Even if the conditions seem unfair to the public and and to the athletes, even Jay Billis, when he was on my pod with me a couple of weeks ago. Some good self-promotion there. Thank you. I was working on it. I was afraid I rushed it. But when Jay was on, he said that someone had approached him about boycotting the Final Four in his senior year at Duke. Jay did? Well, I I actually call him Jay Bird, but I just (laughs) wanted to be a little more formal. And he said, well, how about if I do it next year instead? Meaning he wanted to play in the Final Four. And he's as much of an advocate today for athletes' rights as anyone. And he was an advocate back then when he was playing. But again, it's a lot to expect of a college student. And I think that's part of why there was a push to unionize and also part of why we're seeing a push from some members of Congress, particularly Senators Booker and and Murphy and Blumenthal, to create a Bill of Rights for athletes, to make sure that they are provided protections by federal law protections and benefits that they're not given right now and haven't had the ability to fight for themselves to get. So earlier you asked me about the most important issue in sport and I said name, image, and likeness. Now, I think that was the right answer, but can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on there? Well, as you know, I've been working on this issue for a long time with the Knight Commission, still doing work with the Knight Commission on this And there is discussion, I would say, every five years about whether we are at a tipping point for college athletics. And I think people have been saying that well before the term tipping point had even been popularized. And I think we are finally at a tipping point. And the NCAA is in the process of drafting new rules that would give college athletes the right to receive compensation for the use of their name, image, and likeness. And that is a major, major, major shift or tipping point in the amateurism model, which for over a century has said that college athletes can't get paid for their play or based on their athletic ability other than their scholarship. And in fact, that was the definition of a college athlete according to the NCAA. And now there are new NCAA rules that would allow them 
to get this compensation for their NIL. And those rules are scheduled to go into effect in August of next year. And there's been a flurry of activity at the state and federal level. Over 30 states have introduced legislation in this area. Four states have now passed laws that would allow college athletes to receive NIL compensation. It's New Jersey, California, Florida, and Nebraska. California was the first to pass their law, but Florida had the earliest effective date, which is July 2021, or a month before the NCAA's rules are supposed to go into effect. And it's possible that Nebraska or New Jersey could leapfrog Florida and have an earlier effective date. But what has happened is the NCAA has now gone to Congress and said, hey, we need you to preempt or block these state laws because we need to have uniformity across the schools. And that's something the Knight Commission has talked about a lot and others have talked about a lot, the importance of having all of the schools operate generally under the same framework to make sure there's relatively fair competition. And Congress is obviously interested in this issue. There have been three Senate hearings in different committees in the last month alone on this very issue. Senator Rubio has introduced a bill, and, and we're likely to see at least a couple more bills introduced in the next few months. It's very unlikely anything will get passed before the election, but there is a lot of activity in the area. And then the last one is uh, the Uniform Law Commission, which I'm also involved with, is trying to see if they can come up with an act that would apply to all the states that would provide uniformity and potentially in conjunction with Congress. It's interesting to see the different levels of knowledge of senators on this issue and Congress people in, in general. And there are some in Congress who know a lot about these issues and have lived through these issues. There's Anthony Gonzalez, uh, representative in Ohio, and then Senator Booker, who played football at Stanford. And then there are some who are passionate about the issue, but don't have a great understanding of the issues. And, and I've been saying that for a while. And that's a dangerous combination where there are a lot of people interested, but not necessarily a lot of people who know about the issues. Yeah, that's definitely not limited to the sports world. I've had the same frustrations seeing Congress try to get involved um, in other areas of higher education um, where they really just don't have the understanding of the issues that they need to be making legislation. And when you start your own podcast, you can talk about that. <laughs> and a perfect example of this is at the Senate hearing on name, image, and likeness last week. Senator Burr from North Carolina noted that he's one of two former scholarship athletes in the Senate. And, and this is a quote, I may not know very much about this issue, but it entitles me to an opinion. And that sort of summed up what I think a lot of people are feeling about congressional involvement here. And it's been on the NCAA and the NCPA and the Knight Commission and the Uniform Law Commission and, and lots of others, the Drake Group, to try to educate Congress about this. But but there's a lot of educating to do, clearly. This has all been really informative. Thank you. But let's just get to the question that everybody is wondering about. Does this mean that the NCAA video game is coming back? And you know that's an important question, yes, not important only question. for the public at large. But our son. But our son. Yeah. Who, yeah, who really wants to have Joe Burrows uh, playing in, well, Joe I guess Burrow. now. But he, Joe but he can. <laughs> he can. Yeah, we live in Louisiana. But 
I'm a, I'm a major sports fan. We did play with Joe Burrow earlier today in Madden 21. Yes. Because yeah, he's on the Cincinnati yeah. Bengals, but he is excited to play with Trevor Lawrence and Tulane quarterbacks. But you're absolutely right. Thank you. The number one question that people asked was whether this meant that the NCAA video game was coming back. And the answer is maybe. Keep in mind how, for example, the Madden football game is created. EA has a deal with the league and its licensing arm to get the rights to use all the NFL and team logos. And they have a deal with the licensing arm of the NFL Players Association to get the right to use all the player NILs. And rather than negotiate with each individual player, the NFLPA sells what's called a group license, which allows companies like EA to pay for the right to use all of the players in things like video games. Players still have the right to do individual deals or or smaller deals um, with smaller groups of players. But the group license allows for this blanket license so that all of the players can be used in video games, trading cards, and things like that. To have the college sports video game with all the school logos and all the player licenses, which is what most fans want, EA would have to get the rights from the NCAA's licensing arm, which they've done in the past, and from the players, which is not something they've done in the past because the players have not been allowed to use their name, image, and likeness that way. And there was a lawsuit about whether the NCAA was actually, or EA, was actually using player images in, in their old games. And that's in part what led to the end of the NCAA video games, at least for the last several years. So the NCAA is concerned that having the players form a group to sell a group license might open the door to arguing that they're a union or would make them look more like a union, which, as we've talked about, is something the NCAA very much doesn't want to happen. But the college players can do group licensing without a union. You don't need a union to collectively license your NIL. And in fact, the NFL Coaches Association, for example, which is not a union, they do a group deal for the Madden game, which is why you get all the names and images of NFL coaches in Madden football, except one, And as you may know, Bill Belichick is not in the Madden game and has not been in the Madden game for a long time. You may be surprised, but I did not know that. Well, it was it's more of a figure of speech. I didn't really mean that you might know that. (laughs) But in any event, the question is, why isn't Bill Belichick in the game? Because he has refused to join the Coaches Association and therefore his name, image and likeness is not part of their group license. And that's why when you play with the Patriots in Madden, there will be a generic image, not Bill Belichick, and they use different names. And uh, I believe the latest one is Griffin Murphy, but it's not Bill Belichick. And that's why. It's possible that with this new NIL legislation, that the video game will happen, but it's going to require the NCAA or the applicable legislation to permit some type of group licensing deal and then a joint deal between the players and their group license and the NCAA and the institutions and all their logos. That was the question on everybody else's mind. Here's the question on my mind. Right now, you are watching NFL games, Monday night, Thursday night, and then all day Saturday, sorry, all day Sunday and Sunday night. In fairness... You are reading Jane Austen books 
all day Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. Yes, that's definitely what I'm doing. The one thing that I've been that I've considered myself really lucky in is that you really aren't much of a college football fan. Generally other than Tulane. Other than Tulane. And sometimes, you know, sometimes an LSU game, you're really generally not watching football on Saturdays. Is it true that there are that they are going to be adding NFL games to Saturdays, making you unavailable? You know that I watch these NFL games because it's part of my job as a sports law professor. I am doing work while I'm watching all these games. And if I were a constitutional law professor, I'd be reading the Constitution on Sundays and Mondays and Thursdays and then Saturdays later in the season. But to answer your question, there was speculation that if college football were not played this season, that the NFL might move some of its games to Saturday. And that's become mostly a moot point because of the college games that are happening and more will likely be happening with the Big Ten announcement and potentially the the Pac-12. But it does raise an interesting issue of, of why the NFL doesn't play on Saturdays or Fridays. And the answer comes from, like most of these answers, from the law. Back 70, 80 years ago, the NFL teams decided to pool their television rights and sell them as a group. We talked about the group licensing with name, image, and likeness. Similar idea, but this is for television rights of all of the teams rather than doing their own individual deals. And they sold it as a national package and then share the TV revenue equally. That was held to be illegal under antitrust law. And Congress passed in 1961 the Sports Broadcasting Act, which allowed the NFL and other professional sports leagues to pool their TV rights, sell them as a package and not violate antitrust law. And that's why we have this national NFL TV package. None of the games, at least the the regular season and playoff games, are sold on the local level, as opposed to baseball and basketball and hockey, where you have a national deal, but you also have local deals. All of it in the NFL is through the national deal. Part of the Sports Broadcasting Act says, if we're going to give you, NFL, this exemption from antitrust law, but in return, you have to agree not to put your games on television to conflict with high school football and college football. And the language of the statute itself is interesting because, again, this was written in 1961, and it gives you some insight into the challenges of interpreting statutes that were drafted 80, 90 years ago, or I guess in this case, 60 years ago. But it says the NFL cannot broadcast games or, or uh, NFL cannot broadcast games on any Friday after six o'clock post-Meridian or on any Saturday during the period beginning on the second Friday in September and ending on the second Saturday in December. And the idea there, again, is to protect high school and college football. It doesn't say what time zone. So that's maybe a good subject for somebody's law review article. Then there's a provision that this restriction only applies if the games, the high school and college games, were announced through publication in a newspaper of general circulation, which was common back then, less common now to think about publishing things in a newspaper of general circulation, but prior to August 1st of such year. So it had to be published 
in a newspaper of general circulation prior to August 1. The, this year, because of, of the pandemic, some of the schedules, including the Big Ten schedule, were not scheduled prior to August 1. So there's an argument that, in theory, the NFL could try to put games on Friday and Saturday night, but it is an academic argument, and I am an academic, which is maybe why I'm talking about it. But it is interesting to think about, I think, why the NFL does not have games on Friday and Saturday. And there's also a a lesser-known provision of the Sports Broadcasting Act, and, and the reason why there are no NFL games on Wednesday was because in an amendment to the act. The NFL agreed not to put games on the air on Wednesday nights that conflicted with ALF because there were a lot of members of Congress who were big ALF fans and didn't want to have to worry about that conflict. And there's also a lesser known provision of the Sports Broadcasting Act. And it's the reason why there are no NFL games on Wednesday, because in an amendment to the act, the NFL agreed not to put games on the air on Wednesday nights that conflicted with ALF, because (laughs) there were a lot of members of Congress who were big ALF fans and didn't have to want to have to worry about that. I thought that ALF was on Sunday nights. (laughs) Fact checking. I could be wrong. I, I think that the younger listeners may not get that reference. Well. People who don't get the Alf and Perfect Strangers references on this podcast don't deserve to, to get to get the joke. Yeah. 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 That's a youth tax. It's the a youth tax. Two youths. Okay. Well that's that's a nineties reference as opposed to an eighties reference. So there may be some additional listeners who understand what you're referring to. For experienced listeners, you may have noted just a touch of exasperation in Abby's voice there as I make yet another mildly successful movie reference. Uh, And coincidentally, Abby just left the room. I I don't think it was connected to the movie reference, but in any event, I'm going to finish up the pod solo and just want to touch on two quick issues at the end here and then i'll dig into these some more in a future pod but there's been a lot of discussion now with the big 10 announcing that they are returning to play about what happens with the players who declared for the draft the nfl draft under the assumption that big 10 football is not being played this year and six of the 10 Big Ten players who opted out. This is according to a tweet from Albert Breer. Six of them signed with agents. And we are now seeing at least one or or maybe more than one at this point who want to opt back in now that Big Ten is playing. The problem is under normal circumstances, they would not be permitted to once they declare for the draft and hire an agent. So they're going to have to seek a waiver from the NCAA, I, I hope, and I think some believe that the NCAA will grant a waiver given these exceptional circumstances and that the Big Ten was pretty definitive about not playing football. But stranger things have happened, but that's something to keep an eye out on. And the last issue I want to talk about is the Alston case, which the NCAA recently appealed to the Supreme Court. And I think it's a pretty good indication of how crazy things are in college sports that an NCAA lawsuit that might end up in the Supreme Court is barely being talked about. But in 2014, FBS football players and D1 men's and women's basketball players sued the NCAA and the conferences 
under antitrust law, claiming that the NCAA's restrictions on compensation for college athletes was illegal. And the NCAA argued, as they have argued many times in the past, that the compensation restrictions were legal primarily for two reasons. First, that the compensation limits help preserve their notion of amateurism and the line between college and pro sports and therefore increases the popularity of and demand for college sports. And second, that the rules promote the integration of college sports into the academic communities, which in turn improves the college education they receive. And these were similar arguments that were made in the O'Bannon case. You might recall in the O'Bannon case, the same arguments were made with slightly different issues, but there in the Ninth Circuit decided that the NCAA is allowed to restrict payments to college athletes that are unrelated to education. And in fact, it is that restriction of compensation unrelated or untethered to education that defines college athletes defines amateurism. Amateurism means that you are not paid or compensated for anything unrelated to your education. That line was challenged again in the Alston case, and that's what was appealed to the Supreme Court. And what Judge Wilkin in the Ninth Circuit again held in that case was that the NCAA can continue to limit compensation and benefits that are unrelated to education. Again, again, because those limits are necessary to maintain amateurism. But and this was the, the part of the ruling that troubled the NCAA and has led to their Supreme Court appeal. The NCAA cannot limit non-cash education-related benefits or legitimate education-related costs, which might mean computers, musical instruments, science equipment, other things that are related to education but are not cash. And then the third piece is that the NCAA can limit academic or graduation awards or incentives that are provided in cash as long as that limit is not lower than essentially what is the current limit. And that prong is complicated and we don't need to get into the details here. But the very last part of it is that the court said each conference or certainly each individual school can continue to put any limits on compensation or benefits they want including those non-cash education-related benefits. But what it can't do is agree nationally among all the conferences and all the schools to put those limits in place. So the NCAA was unhappy with any interference with their rules, which is why they appealed to the Supreme Court. The plaintiffs were somewhat happy with this case because they got more than they had before, but what they were really seeking was the end to any limits on compensation, which they didn't get. Will the Supreme Court take the case up? Unlikely, simply because the Supreme Court takes very few cases up, but they could take this case up because there's now a little bit of disagreement, at least uh, among the courts, about what amateurism means. So another thing to keep your eye on. There's a lot more to cover, but I'll end on that note, and I'll be doing these explainer-type pods every month or so. And Abby just walked back in the room, perfect timing, as I was wrapping up. Abby, why did you leave in the middle of the podcast? I decided I needed to do a rewatch of ALF. 
<laughs> it also turns out it was actually on Monday nights, but you know, the point stands. Oh, was it the special Jane Austen episode? Yeah, it was um, a very uh, special episode. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on to be my co-host. Oh, you're welcome. It I, was a lot of fun. It, it was a lot of fun. We'll have to do this again. I'll try to book you a couple of weeks in advance. Yes. I'm very, very busy. I so I, I need a lot of notice. I know you are. All right. Well, thanks for listening and we will see you next time between the lines. <laughs>